Hinga iwi o te moti kanui, te mehiki a tata katoa, ko tēnei te hōta katoa tahi te ahikā, ko maraia rakuraku ahau. Welcome back to Te Ahikā and we're gearing ourselves up for another year. I'm Maraia Rakraku. Ko Justin Maria Ho e tika na tō kōrero e hoa 2010 in our first broadcast for the year. With Radio New Zealand National's Kaupapa Māori programme Te Ahikā. Where we bring you an insight into the indigenous culture of Aotearoa, New Zealand by profiling Māori in all our diversity. But first, we've all come back from hiatus. Justine, what did you get up to? Well, it was picture postcard perfect back in my <laughs> home turf of Tauranga Moana. Relaxing back with the whanau, eating, swimming, hanging out at the beach. And while you were in the Western Bay of Plenty doing that, I was over on the other side, the Eastern Bay of Plenty, doing the carbon copy same, hanging with whanau, tormenting kids and becoming extremely paranoid about the sun. Now, being our first broadcast and in our desperation to still believe we're on <laughs> holiday, we're going to ease into our first programme, bringing you a taster of what we have lined up for the year, as well as some of the Māori news stories from the past month. We meet heaps of people through the work we do here on Tahika, and inevitably we profile people who sadly died over the past month. The holiday period didn't kick off to a good start for Tūhoi Iwi, when Paula Kruja died on December 20th. One of the 50 or so remaining 28th Māori Battalion Second World War veterans, the 84-year-old was buried at Te Tōtara Marae in Roatoki. Which means he was 13 when the war broke out and in his late teens when he enlisted. That's right, Justine. He fought alongside my kraua and when I met him as an adult, he knew immediately who my grandfather was, who died when I was one. And by knowing who he was, he knew who I was. He was a truly, truly lovely man. And as well as many of the accolades he collected over his lifetime, which included a Creative New Zealand Te Wakatoi Award for his contribution to Te Reo Māori in 2007, he was very active in the church. And indeed, in the Ruatoki community where with his wahine, Mihihia, he brought up two children, Tāmati and Mariana Lassie Kruja. So, sounds like it was a big loss. It was, and I guess that's what's so great about Te Taonga Ate Wakatoi Awards that we profile every year. The categories that recognise the unsung heroes, those komatua, our oldies who stay home and are often unknown outside of their home areas and just contribute to the lives there. Because when you look at it, Justine, in terms of te ao Māori, they're the ones who keep things ticking over, eh? And allow us to live away from our home areas and build lives outside of there. Basically, just doing what the oldies and the people who maintain the home fires have done for generations. Moi mai e paura. In her lifetime, J.C. Sturm, or Jackie Sturm's accomplishments, were often overshadowed by her former husband, poet... James K. Baxter. Yet there's no denying the pathway she blazed, though that's not how she would have described it at all for Māori writers. Mariah, you spent some time getting to know Jackie a few years back. I did. It was a bit like that novel by Mitch Absalom, Tuesdays with Murray, though these were Tuesdays with Jackie, her son John Baxter, and the granddaughter she brought up, Steph. I'd sit there for a couple of hours and Jackie would talk about her life, and I did this over a couple of weeks. Here's a snippet. The male voice you can hear is John Baxter. So the very first thing that got accepted for publication, what was it about? A line, I think, or two lines, brown feet running in the dust or something like that. And, and who accepted it, Mum? 
Who is it accepted by? What was it? When were you first published? What on? It was a student mag. Would it have been salient in Dunedin? Then later when I moved up to Canterbury, um, their magazine, their, their literary mag was Canter. In Dunedin, I had everything turned down that I sent in, except one. That oh, so it would have been salient was the first one then? If you got one accepted, it must have been. Yes, I think that would have been. Yeah, been I think I've got that, that right. Then Canton. And when I went, moved up to Canton, I thought, oh, I'll try again. I'll send a whole lot to the and see what happens. And I was absolutely amazed. They took a lot. <laughs> the whole lot. Mm. Why was that amazing? And what to do you, you mean by the lot? How many would that have been round about? Oh, well, I sent them poems and I sent them. Like how many? Oh, I wouldn't know, John. I can't remember now. Five, ten, twenty, fifty? Oh. Maybe. Not fifty, but it, it, a lot. twenty at least. Oh, okay. Not oh. just three. Oh, no. Mm. Oh, no, because I'd been writing a long time and, you know. And I had all my rejection slips, of course. So rejection slips, who were they from? Other publishing houses? or mm. Right. I never got into landfall. But then I wasn't... Oh, I think I... Did I get one thing in? But there's a very famous writer, and she was a very dear friend of mine, and they kept turning her down too. It was Janet Frame. How's that for a bit of unknown information? I think what we forget is just how small the writing scene was back in the 1940s and 50s. And what really struck me about Jackie was that she didn't see how what she was doing was really contributing to anything. Jackie died on the 31st of December after a long-term sickness. Moi mai e te fire. If there's one thing we seem to have taken on with a vengeance in this country... It's summer music festivals. The International Peace Festival in Parihaka, which in the past you've gone to, Mariah. That's right. It usually takes place around the first couple of weeks of January. And it's usually fantastic. As you know, one of the highlights for me is the choir, which pulls together festival-goer randoms for a few hours' practice and then you get on stage and sing your heart out. All under the guidance of Stephen Tabana, a Melbourne, Australian-based Pākehā, Choir master. It's also the Kopapa. The event highlights the passive resistance adopted by its old people in Parihaka to resist against armed forces in the mid-1880s. And this is way before the worldwide known example of India's Mahatma Gandhi. Justine, did you manage to 
to make it to any of the one million music festivals taking place over the summer? Well, I didn't quite make it to the Matakana Island Breeze Festival um, or Ragamuffin, which I'm kicking myself now. But um, I did manage to attend the... Indigenous Weavers International Symposium, Iwi for short, that went for five days. That was in Rosorua, right? It was. From what I saw, it was huge. Yeah, about um, over 150 people attended. So, is it Indigenous people getting together and swapping weaving stories or what? It was, but it was basically a time for Indigenous peoples from around the world to get together to share ideas and even share, participate in practical workshops about what they do. So we're not just talking about the brothers and sisters across the ditch in Australia, eh? The indigenous Australian Aborigines. No, they were Hawaiians. The Kukan peoples of Olympia, Washington in the States. Ida, and a weaver from Japan who was talking about the natural dyeing techniques used for kimono. It's called awa. Um, there'll be explanations about that in a few weeks' time. Not forgetting that Māori used a range of resources for dyeing too, eh? Like, I know my nanny used to use onion skins. That gives a brown colouring to the harakeki or flakes when you dip it in it. And there are plants when boiled that give off a purple colour. And get this, Justine, there's also dirt. You boil a, boil a type of dirt and you can get colour from that as well. Wow, interesting. Dirt in the garden, like any old garden. Yeah. Yep, different types of dirt. Oh my god! I became quite the connoisseur at, uh, connoisseur at eating dirt. Well, these days, though, eh, Mariah Weavers tend to go to the supermarket or chemist and buy Dylon dye. That's how you get kids here with fabulous tie-dye effects or shimmering gold. So as well as sharing practical things like that, what about some of the commercial realities? Did you hear about similarities with Māori? Funny you should mention that, Mariah, because there were panel discussions about that, copyright and intellectual property. Jeez, it sounds pretty relevant too, eh, Justine? Considering the raru that broke out at the end of last year about the toy iho mark here in Aotearoa. That more or less indicates quality assurance of Māori art. Just as a reminder, toy iho is like a branding, eh? It shouts authenticity. This is a Māori product, stopping all the made-in-China rip-offs. Well, that was the initial intention. Yeah, and as you may recall, the body that manages it, Creative New Zealand, felt there was no need to have it anymore. Well, that's how the artists saw it. But that's all changed now, eh, Justine? Toy Iho is going to carry on. It'll just be administered by someone else. What were the views of some of the people at the symposium? Well, the Kumara Vine hadn't quite caught up with the latest. They were too busy admiring each other's work. And no doubt talking about the legend weaver, Digeris Tikanawa, who passed away last year. Because, let's face it, weaving actually involves sitting, usually, and talking and laughing and exchanging gossip, other stories. Here's a teaser. We'll be playing more over the next few weeks. My name is Beverly Ratineano. Currently involved as education consultant for Ngāti Pukaua Education Endowment Board. And I'm, I'm here at the conference, but no matter... Where any educationist is, you can't help but view the situation in terms of education. And at this conference, it's obviously the skill of weaving. My mother encouraged us to take an interest in weaving, and uh, I would. My first, um, my first interest was making um, potato kitty, 
and it was okay to have that uh, a little crooked. Is that kete that carries potatoes? Yes, yes, the, the kete for the for rewai collecting and uh, harvesting our our. Um, a potato for consumption as a family, and then I decided I wanted to to weave a better quality kete. Eventually, possibly working with Kia Kia, and I went and uh, took lessons from Emily Schuster, based at um, the Arts and Crafts Centre. Oh, this would be at least 30 years ago. I can remember the first kete I made was crooked. And uh, Emily said to me, are you happy with what you have completed this afternoon? I said, no, I hate it. She said, well, you know what to do. So I decided that what she was inspiring me to do was go home, unpick it, and have another, possibly have another go at putting it together. And I did. And the next morning I took it back and I sat, sat very proudly in her class and she said, how do you feel now about that, Kitty?" I said... It's much better, much improved, but I didn't tell her I stayed up till 2 o'clock to get it right. <laughs> Kia ora Beverly Anaru and Weaver rule number one is to get the ara, that is the anchor piece, right. And if there are any mistakes, you've got to do the whole, take it apart and start again. Which is what weaving is all about, really, patience and diligence. I'm Justine Murray. I'm Maraia Rakraku and this is Te Ahika. While I couldn't think of anything worse than sitting in a movie theatre when the sun is shining outside, I know many trooped to see the James Cameron film Avatar. You did, eh, Justine? I did, and it blew my mind. Revolutionary effects, but like everyone else's criticisms, the storyline was a little weak. Bad multinational. Puritan indigenous. Well, something like that. But there is a mighty link, though. Um, The indigenous Navi people, that's an avatar, their dialect apparently is based on te reo Māori. E kira. Any examples? Hmm. Nah, I'm not from Pandora. Yeah, but there's a Pandora in Napier. (laughs) (laughs) Now, here's one filmmaker you can't criticise for poor storyline, and that's Taika Waititi, whose films are, in the words of Mr T... Ace! Tamatu, well, that's one film that really captures the whole thing about war beautifully. The short film Two Cars, One Night, that earned him an Academy Award nomination. And it was filmed up in Whanau Apanui Whakatohe area, up near Tekaha. Using the local talent, which always gives his work a degree of reality to it, eh? Makes those communities we know so well come alive. Much is made of the bureaucratic buzzword Māori consultation process. When Māori are consulted about a raft of issues that impact upon them. Whether it's a focus group for a health issue, where four Māori represent the whole population of Māori in Aotearoa. Or there's a long, drawn-out oral and written legal process, as was the case with the proposal to make Auckland a super city. Either way, there's frustration felt by some Māori who either feel locked out, overwhelmed or, frankly, used. Which is how Kimiura Rawiri, CEO of Terunanga Onga Tiranginui and Tauranga Moana, the local iwi organisation, felt when she was initially interviewed by media after hearing the coroner service was being closed down. I think the 18th of Christmas, that's when our office was closing down for the Christmas holiday period, we found out at lunchtime a phone call from uh, one of our local 
police members who has to remain unnamed of course that uh, the decision had been made to close the mortuary facility on the 31st of January. So of course we were alarmed. At the same day, on the same day our Komato had been uh, advised of it. So then they started contacting the Renan officers and asking what's going on, can you do anything about it? So we then went about through the Renan office making inquiries with the local district health board, with the police, Ministry of Justice, and finally our communications ended up between both the Minister for Courts, Honourable Georgina Tuhuhu, and the Minister of Health, Honourable Tony Ryle, with their offices. And um, uh, it's my expectation, I guess, or my, my view is that this week today has come about as a result of the, minister, of the concerns now being raised with the ministers. Um, so there was some political pressure there? I, I understand that is the case. Um, although that wasn't announced today, that's what I've been advised from mm. the, the various ministers' offices, and which is pleasing to hear that they're now looking into our concerns. I think the other thing that's pleasing to hear at um, today's hui from both the Ministry of Justice and District Health Board is that the facility will stay open and remain in Tauranga, until they can sort out a long-term uh, strategy to ensure it re it's retained in total. Now In the hui, I understood that, well, it came across in the hui, that did the officials, um, by officials I mean senior management, did they meet this morning before this hui? Yes, uh, that's my understanding. Were you, did you attend that? No, no, I wasn't invited <laughs> either. I was advised of the hui uh, last night on an unofficial call as well. That, that meeting was uh, to happen and what were some of the options that were going to be proposed. So it is pleasing to hear that they've come out at least with a short-term fix. Um, but as you would have heard me in there, put the invitation out to both the Ministry and District Health Board to involve tangata whenua in any discussions from here on in. here today representing Ngāti Ranginui Iwi. Firstly, to you... To you, Philip, thank you for arranging this for you. As you know, the angst that it's caused our iwi over the holiday period when we only found out just before Christmas. Uh, secondly, thank you to our local police who brought this matter to our attention. Because without your information, we would not have been here today and come the 31st of January, it likely would have been closed. Uh, I also have to thank Dr Bain for the support and guidance that you've provided for us today as a Niwi and to the local pathologists. It is pleasing to hear that at this morning's meeting the District Health Board and Ministry of Justice have been able to come to arrangement to retain the service in Tauranga and retain the facility in Tauranga. Mm -hmm. And like our, our cousins down in the Eastern Bay, Tangata uh, Whenua of Tauranga invite you to have us participate in the ongoing facility for this area. In that no matter where you're going to put the building, we're going to be involved as tangata whenua. So I put that invitation to you. Um, when talking with Philip and others in the Ministry of Justice just before Christmas there and during the Christmas New Year break, as you recall, Philip, there were two concerns that I raised on behalf of our iwi. One was the impact that the closure was going to have, and uh, two was the process or lack of process in our involvement in a decision such as that. So I invite you to contact Ngāti Ranginui Rūnana direct the District Health Board on any key matter. With all due respect to your position, Amuhari, and punahu to you and your board, like our cousins in Tūhoi, we found out at the last hour. And it's just not good enough. 
So that's a challenge we put both to the District Health Board, we've put it to the Ministry of Justice, they're well aware. And so we look forward to developing those relationships and direct communication in the future. Kia ora. And I suppose one of the biggest issues was the lack of court at all, the lack of discussion with iwi Māori. Aye, aye. That were, those were the two main issues for us as a niwi when this matter was first raised. One was the impact, and the immediate issue was the impact that the closure of the mortuary facility would have on us and our people. Um, secondly was why were we only told at the last hour, you know, where was that involvement and that consultation with iwi, especially about a, a significant matter such as this. Um, that would impact on our culture. And so that's the other tunnel that I've put out. In particular to the District Health Board, we consider them our local District Health Board. Yeah. Ministry of Justice probably a bit more removed because they're, they're centralised in Wellington. Or, yeah. uh, but we, we've also communicated that to Ministry of Justice recently. Please look at uh, your consultation with us, with Iwi, and make sure it improves. Um, I have had assurance by the Ministry of Justice's representative today, Heather Baggett, that from their office she will be in contact with us. Um, so that's pleasing to hear. Mm. I hope that uh, Philip Barmer takes it back to his board. And whilst, um, with all respect to the systems and processes, such as the DHB Runana and certain positions, specific Māori positions a District Health Board may have, there's a difference in dealing with iwi direct and dealing with committees or employees who happen to be Māori and happen to be tangata whenua. Kim Yora, I mean, if this had gone the other way, if they had uh, signalled that the mortuary was closing, was carrying out the closure, what, would, what, would your, what are your thoughts if that had happened? I think there were high risks, as in some of the discussions that we've had with a couple of local police members, of the tense situations that would have arisen between our whānau members and police if they were required to transport our whānau out of town for a post-mortem. Uh, the other thing that had been brought to our attention was whilst the police are responsible to transport the tupapaku to the post-mortem, they're not responsible to return them to the whānau. Yeah. <laughs> so, which would have been an added cost um, to the grieving whānau. Um, obviously would have slowed up our cultural processes in being able to conduct our tangihana. In, in these times, or oh, huge implications, huge. So not just for the Tupapaku, but for those of us that are still living mm. as well. The, the impact on their, on our mental health, our emotional health. Kimmy, I mean, you've really driven this kopapa. It's nice to see that, um, although the details weren't explained due to commercial or confidentiality reasons, about. Um, um, coming up with some solutions to retain or to continue with mortuary services. Are you quite um, optimistic about the future or do you just see it as well, we've still got to mahi ngā mahi? I think there's still a lot of mahi um, doesn't end here with the announcement. Yeah, for ourselves to do. Um, obviously we'll still be looking to both Ministers, Minister of Health, Minister of Courts for answers and what their ministries intend doing to make sure this matter is resolved. I think the an important issue um, that's come out of it uh, for the whole of government is that there is a, a gap in our law, whereas the provision of the mortuary facility doesn't sit anywhere at the moment. So that's another challenge for our government to have to look at, to fill that gap. Um, 
and make sure that when they make changes to acts such as when the Health Act was amended, that key important matters such as this don't slip through the, the gaps and then we find out, as we have today, that actually nobody's responsible, not the health, not the Ministry of Justice. Mm. So. Good turnout from the people today? Excellent turnout. Um, I intend going back to the office now to send out communications from Maorunana, thanking them for their support, uh, overwhelmed by the support of our people that have come today. Kimura Rawiri. And a decision about the future of the mortuary services will be made in three months' time. We'll keep you updated. And no doubt those feelings of frustration will be ongoing for Māori around the country as the super city structure in Auckland becomes more concrete. Whanganui Māori go into round 200 with their local mayor. The decision of the repealing of the foreshore and seabed act takes place. And occupations spring up all over the country. Like at the moment, Justine A with the Pōpata brothers. Aida, they're getting some mixed feedback, hey? A bit like Hone Harawera. Though I'm sure opinions on everything from the state of the nation to the value of occupations was being thrown around like frisbees at the Napuhi Festival on Friday. And Dewey festivals seem to be the rage over summer. Only way to entice our whānau back over from Australia, Justine, <laughs> like the Intimidai Sports Day that is huge over in Uawa, Tolaga Bay. When all those Tiaitanga Ahawitsi and Ngāti Prolot take to the Tolaga Bay school grounds, emulate their descendants, and try to outbest each other in touch and other sports. Now, speaking of those grounds, I spent some time with Victor Walker last year as he led me through all the kōrero about the area when a whole lot of graves were unearthed in 2007. But the last, just towards the end, after we had sort of found these foundations... Incredibly, we found a horse and it was buried back there where we started on and we had missed it on the earlier and it, it just, there was another shadow and the archaeologist said, look, this is the last shadow but it's so, it's not, it's, un, it's unlike the rest but we're going to investigate. Lo and behold, we found a horse buried in the urupa of all these tipuna, a black stallion buried on its back with its fetlocks forward. And so we, we realised... That almost seems unbelievable. It was incredible. We were dumbfounded. It almost seems like a myth. I mean, is that normal? We have since found that horses have been attributed considerable status and they have been urupa. What got us was the close proximity to to Tipuna. And according to the archaeologists and the, the scientists that we had here, it was from the same era. Now, we know for a fact that Baker had a huge stallion that he would go around on his missions with. It could possibly be his horse. We also know that the Kaniya Takiro had a great horse. It could also have been his horse that was of considerable um, fame to be a mana to be locked in here with our, our tipuna. So we called him Status. And, and uh, his koi we were taken away with, with the rest. Oh no, I think he's buried by the plaque. We left our horse here. But even then I thought that um, we, we may have been able to keep status and <laughs> And, and bring him back to yeah, <laughs> give him four <laughs> Yeah, yeah, so we that found out. very Greek mythology, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Um, Pegasus. <laughs> A horse and... to carry you on yeah. your way. <laughs> <laughs> you <know? laughs>
to the to the afterlife and oh. yeah. We'll have that coming up next week. So, what do we have coming up in the new year? We'll have more regular reviews of music and books in our review segment, Tewetewete, starting with... Nathan Matthews of Massey University. He's reviewing the 2007 Huia publication, Terror in Our Midst, searching for terror in Aotearoa, New Zealand. As an idea, I thought this was an extremely good um, theme or, or kaupapa to, to investigate. Um, it was a highly topical um, kaupapa at that particular time for obvious reasons. And so I felt uh, in terms of the production of a, a in-depth, well-structured and researched publication, on the, I guess, what you would call the terror raids, um, primarily in Tuhoi in, in 2007, um, was a good idea. And particularly because it, it focused on coming from a, a Māori point of view and looked to highlight sort of the pervading issues and themes that n- not only were noticeable in the raids themselves, but historically... Um, in terms of how Māori are portrayed in the media, the relationship between the state and Māori, and in particular the state and Tūhoi, and then falling out of that, the relationship between the police and Māori. So as a whole, I thought it was um, a very timely publication which looked at a, a subject that was important to Māori people and I guess important to the wider understanding of race relations within New Zealand. Prior to you reading the book, Tira Namist, what did you know about Tuhoi? Um, well, I've been quite fortunate. I've, I've, throughout my career as an academic involved in Māori studies, I've interacted with, obviously, with many Tuhoi people who are leading exponents in, in te reo and tikanga. So um, I, I have a fairly good understanding of Tuhoi from an outsider's uh, perspective. Um, in terms of sort of their history and even, I guess, t- to a certain degree, the way in which they view the world um, in terms of their, their tuhoetanga and the importance of those communities um, in, the, in the Bay of Plenty. So you came to it pretty well informed. What did you know about the raids then? Yeah, my, my understanding of the raids probably wasn't as in-depth. Uh, I guess it saturated the mainstream news media for for a number of weeks, so a lot of what I garnered was from what I saw on TV and then taking it away and sort of critiquing it in my own time, I guess, um, up against my own understandings of the various relationships between Māori and uh, and the government and police, etc. So from a grassroots perspective, my understandings of the raids wasn't wasn't necessarily that deep. Um, However, I did follow it through the mainstream media and, and also through Māori, Māori media uh, outlets as well. Okay, so the book is two, around about 250 pages long, right? There's some pretty weighty names in here that have contributed. Um, there's Mona Jackson, there's Potemata, there's Sue Abel. She lectures in media studies. She monitored newspapers and television coverage at the time of the raids. Did any of your views change after you'd read the book? 
No, not necessarily. I mean, I, or any of your understandings deepen. I think something that was highlighted well within the book is, is this historical understanding of the relationship between the police or armed constabulary and, and tuhoi, so the things that have occurred in the past and how this, I guess, was, was almost like a, a modern-day reincarnation of things that had occurred, say, in uh, 1916 with Rua um the raids of Maungapohatu and, and different things like that. So I, th- I think, in fact, my understanding of of how this must have affected those people, those communities, um, was definitely deepened through reading this book. Um, some of the other sort of stuff, and I'm glad you mentioned Sue Abel. I thought her chapter was very well written and, and brought brought out that that idea of the way in which things are portrayed in the media and how that can affect sort of uh, perceptions of events. Um, so that that type of um, analysis that was contained in the book certainly allowed the reader to broaden their understanding of the underlying issues. Terranamus, it's made up of a series of essays with contributors from different academic departments and organisations around Aotearoa. I mean, one thing I noticed, Nathan, was, um, you know, out of the contributors, more than half of them seem to come from one particular university. Yeah, that's right. So the, 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 the editor of the book, who I guess you would assume was a driving force behind this publication, was situated in, in Victoria University. And so I guess he's reached out and tapped um, colleagues um, in terms of, of coming on board as, as authors. And I, I suppose that was probably potentially one of the weaknesses of this publication is that they haven't, uh, they didn't look further afield, perhaps, to find people um, to contribute to the book. So, whilst I think all the all the chapters are well written and 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 there are good authors in there, perhaps if the if the net had been spread uh, a little wider, there, there perhaps could have been uh, it could have improved the the overall book in terms of finding other people that perhaps were more intimately um, yeah because in the field. They're largely, you know, they're primarily academics. That's right. I never, you know, you don't really get a sense of the voice from the kainga. I mean, the people that were directly affected by what happened. um, Probably my my major criticism of of the book as a whole is that I didn't get a feel for the voice of Tuhoi coming through. So um, there there were obviously Tuhoi contributors in terms of... um, in the epigraph and also at the end in the epilogue, there was um, contributors of Tuhoi. There was also, and I don't know, definitely, there's definitely at least one Tuhoi uh, author of a chapter. Um, but again, I, I almost felt that that chapter, which was placed in part three of Reflections, which it really should have been more centrally situated in, in the part two in terms of the raids and the responses. So I sort of wondered about the the actual division into parts that occurred as well, um, where I, I couldn't... Whilst they have titles and uh, the first one, the past, is present, so it's mainly historical. Part two, the raids and responses, and then part three is reflections. Um, yeah, I, I felt that one chapter in particular... Um, whilst it has reflections in its own title, really should have been in the in the raids and responses. So structurally, I, I kind of felt that it, it maybe didn't flow as well as it could. But I suppose my, my overriding thing here was seemed to be the lack of contribution by, by Tuhui to the to the real the body of the text.
Which does make you wonder who is it actually pitched at, eh? I mean, is it going to be a university text? I mean, to be fair, it is the only book that has been released since the raids in 2007 that that has been published in Aotearoa. Exactly. So I sort of, when I view it, I weigh it up against that knowledge as well that without this particular book, we wouldn't have anything in terms of hard copy publication that deals with with what occurred. So at least this book is keeping um, the, the knowledge out in the open where other people can read and engage with it rather than, as I would guess, the New Zealand police and, and New Zealand government would prefer it to, to go away to a certain extent um, as opposed to remain in the, in the public forum. So um, for, for the, the criticisms of the book, it, it is still a good book and it, it still meets that criteria of keeping um, the idea or the, the understandings about the terror raids in the, in the public forum. So how do you think it would stack up internationally against indigenous other Indigenous texts that writes I, back towards these sorts of events? Yeah, I, I probably think that, uh, yeah, the, the, it sort of appears that maybe it was a, a little rushed and maybe not quite as... Um, wide-reaching in terms of the contributors as it could have been. And so if you compared it to an international text, I think it would stack up okay, but it wouldn't wouldn't, uh, exceed expectations, I wouldn't think, in terms of an international comparison. Um, Yeah, sorry. Any chapters in particular that stand out for you? Yeah, there there was a couple. I really enjoyed Sue Abel's chapter. Tuhoi and terrorism on television news. Um, I really that was you know a really enjoyable read. It was easy to read, and she highlighted you know some really good points about the way in which things are are portrayed in the media and how um, I guess what's put into the news and what's left out can really change the perception of an event or or a group of people or a community. So that one stands out. I also enjoyed. Um, I'll just go through Māori MPs in Operation 8 so Dominic O'Sullivan he did a little bit of an analysis on the way in which the various Māori MPs reacted to the raids and the the types of rhetoric that they were uh, using within Parliament and when they were being interviewed in terms of you know were they standing up for these people in in the Uruwera or were they making a stand or were they towing the party line so that, that was quite interesting and I enjoyed that chapter and then also in the, the final re- reflections one, and this is the chapter that I thought should have been in part two, and I enjoyed um, from Rawinia Higgins, another chapter in our history reflection on the events at Ruatuki. And I guess that's because that was the most substantial part of the book that gave you an understanding of a Tuhoi perspective. And I you know, obviously could hear the voice of Tuhoi in her writing. So I really enjoyed that one. There was other notable contributors as well. I mean, um, there were some really good uh, chapters in here. Craig Innes has one on uh, Māori with guns, armed Māori in the early settler parliament. Um, stands out. And, and Alice Tipunga Somerville, Poetic Justice, writing as the struggle. That was interesting as well, and just looking at um, the fact that all types of writing are political and can make a make a statement, and I suppose that's where this book is slightly different from others, in which 
um, there were some imaginative ways of, of getting uh, opinion and information across used in the third part. So there was, a, sorry, I'm just, um, a crossword used um, to, to help highlight the underlying themes or the main key words related to the, to the, uh, to the raids, um, which I, I thought was interesting and, and was something slightly different from what you would usually find in this type of a, a publication. Right in the middle, there's a, there's a few photos. Did you find them helpful? Um, to be honest, no, the, the photos weren't really... They, they didn't add a lot for me because I didn't feel they were necessarily tied to... I guess they were tied to a chapter, but, I mean, a lot of the subject content in here weren't, weren't really tied to the, the photos themselves. So whilst they were good, um, I wouldn't say uh, take them out, but, you know, I didn't find that they were necessarily... Well, they were like necessary in terms of understanding the the types of information that was that was given with uh, in the book. So, in summary, I'm Maraya yep. Rakaraku, and I'm talking with Dr. Nathan Matthews. We're reviewing terror in our midst, searching for terror in Aotearoa, New Zealand, a 2008 publication by Huia Publishers. I'm hearing that it probably could have done with a bit more, maybe boiling of the pot. You know, a little bit of culling would have been quite yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. I, I felt there was definitely room for for improvement with this publication. Um, in terms of the the contributors that that we used, the authors that contributed to the book, but also um, maybe some sort of slight structural um, stuff that may have aided in the the readability of the text for the reader. Um, but in saying that, I did feel, and, and it stands to this day to be the only text that really deals with this this particular event or events. So I think it is a, it's a thought-provoking sort of a publication. Like there's some good chapters in there that really do make you think about some of the, the issues and, and themes. So, I mean, overall, I think it's a good publication, but I, I, yeah, I wouldn't say it was, it was excellent. There certainly could have been improvements. Dr Nathan Matthews, you'll hear more from him over the next 12 months. Next Saturday on the 6th of February, it's Waitangi Day. And our broadcast on the Sunday will be dedicated to the Treaty of Waitangi, who, without its existence, I mean, let's face it, people, Aotearoa New Zealand could well have been a French state. That's us for the first show of 2010. Aida, hoki mai anō hei tērā wiki. Mauri ora tātou katoa.